Good morning, everyone. Good to see everybody this morning. We're going to be in the book of Exodus this morning. Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 through 22. If you brought your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to go ahead and open up there. Again, that's Exodus 1. We'll start in verse 15. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, that scripture will be on the screen when we get to that point. If you could read from there. So I can remember when, uh, as a child, authority, while respected in my life, uh, was also something to be resisted. Can I get an amen from anybody that remembers rebellious youth uh, and at times wanting to resist authority, just to resist authority, just to to make sure that they knew that you could. Uh, Maybe you guys were perfect children and didn't do anything like that, but I remember doing that. And I remember a fourth grade uh, teacher, probably the first time I really remember getting in trouble. I was a quiet kid, so I didn't get in a lot of trouble. But I remember in fourth grade, uh, our teacher uh, was getting aggravated that people were starting uh, on the worksheet that we were doing before she got through delivering all the instructions. Um, And she had explained that to us multiple times, and I still didn't want to wait. And so I went ahead, like, you know, a precocious kid often does, uh, went ahead and did uh, that. Anyway, went ahead and started with it while she was still explaining the instructions. I got sent out into the hall uh, my, I had some, some really like uh, uh, loyal friends, though, uh, that went and stood out in the hall with me. That they, they got in trouble on purpose so that they could go with me. How about some friends right there, right? Um, and it was, it was this mini rebellion that the three of us kind of threw in our little fourth grade class. Uh, and while I was afraid that I was going to get in trouble, not by the teacher, but when I got home, I'm sure a lot of you know what that was like, too. Um, because uh, my cousin walked by and saw me in the hallway and says, I'm going to tell your mom and dad. I was like, no, don't do it. Even though I was afraid, there was still a part of me that was wrongly proud that we were a part of this little resistance movement. Um, probably you can remember as a child of resisting and rebelling in little ways. Maybe you were asked to do something by a teacher or a coach or a parent, uh, and you did almost everything, but you made sure you left just one little part off so that you could still be your own person, right? Like if your mom or your dad came and told you to clean your room, you left one little toy out so that there was still a part of you that felt like you were expressing your own self and being a, a, a little bit independent. Um, I don't see many nods of agreement, so maybe I was a really bad kid. I don't know, uh, but that's who I was, and, and I'm guessing there's probably more of that going on in the audience than, than you're leading me to believe, because uh, there is something in us as humanity that we, uh, we like to resist authority. Uh, we want to be independent. Uh, every child goes through that with their parents to varying degrees. That's why uh, James Dobson wrote the famous book, Strong-Willed Child, right? Because there are strong-willed children who want to resist, want to do their own thing and go their own way. That is part of the human experience. But sometimes that resistance gets turned into truly heroic things. Think about the people who risked their lives, and many of them losing their lives, like uh, Corey Tinboom's parents, uh, to protect Jews during the Holocaust. There are myriads of stories of, of Christians and otherwise just non-Jews uh, who lived in areas where the Germans were raiding to take Jews into concentration camps, who would hide Jews in their homes at the risk of losing their own livelihoods and potentially their own lives themselves if they were found to be hiding, to be hiding Jews. You could think of, uh, in, in the American mindset, you could think of the Underground Railroad. Uh, you could think of Rosa Parks and her passive resistance. Uh, you could think of many cases of people resisting authorities for heroic reasons. And then we're going to look at an example in Scripture of that today in Exodus chapter 1. We are in the middle, or 
really towards the beginning still of a series that where we're looking at heroic female figures throughout Scripture uh, in, in six different places in Scripture. This will be the second uh, and how we can learn from them and apply what we see in Scripture to our lives. So last week we started with the uh, uh, Egyptian maidservant Hagar. Today we're going to go to Egypt again and, and look at two Hebrew midwives by the name of Shifra and Puah in the beginning of the book of Exodus. Let me give you some context a little bit. Many of you uh, know the story of what's going on here in Exodus chapter 1, but just to refresh us, uh, at the end of Genesis, uh, most of the last part of Genesis is full of the story of Joseph, which is Joseph uh, sold into slavery or, or almost killed, but eventually sold into slavery by his brothers. Uh, a long story takes him uh, eventually to Pharaoh's court, where he becomes very powerful, um, he builds up during a time of famine a lot of riches for the people of Egypt. Pharaoh gets, becomes the, the owner of all the land of Egypt because of the way that they were prepared for this famine, the resources, the stockpiles that they had. And Joseph also in that made a place for his family, the Jewish people, the sons of Israel in the land of Goshen there in Egypt. Uh, and we see the, uh, um, all kinds of fruitfulness, all kinds of success, all kinds of, of, of wealth and happiness and comfort towards the end of the book of Genesis uh, when Joseph reaping the rewards of what was a very hard life. And then in Exodus, things turn quickly. Uh, we see that Joseph passes away. Uh, we see the people of Israel still within uh, the confines of Egypt. And then the book tells us, Exodus tells us, the narrator, that there is a Pharaoh who comes to power or a king of Egypt who comes to power who does not know Joseph, who doesn't remember that story, who doesn't have that connection. And he begins to look at the massive amount of Hebrew people in his land and becomes fearful, even to the point of paranoia. Paranoid that these Jewish people are eventually either going to rise up against them and no longer be subject to the Egyptians, or even worse, that they will combine forces with one of the other world powers around Egypt and help them overthrow Egypt in the long run. And so he's beginning to get afraid of them, this Pharaoh, this new king of Egypt, and he wants to do something about it. And so he decides to make life difficult for the, for the Hebrews. Uh, he uh, has taskmasters put over them, subjecting them to cruel treatment, but that doesn't do the trick. They continue uh, to, uh, to be fruitful and multiply just as God commanded them. There continues to be more and more and more of them. Their numbers continue to grow, and that takes us right into uh, Exodus chapter 1, verse 15 that we're about to read. And what I want you to see this morning as we read the story that we're about to read of two Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Puah, is that you see within their resistance to what Pharaoh wants from them, that you also see a greater submission to a God who is more powerful than Pharaoh in their mind and in reality. And we see that true submission to God, true submission means resistance. True submission requires resistance. And I'll spell that out a little bit more as we go along. But let's go to God in prayer before we open the word. Father, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for your presence here with us. God, I pray that you would remove distraction. God, that you'd remove the chaos of a busy week from our minds and our hearts this morning so that we might hear what you have to say through your word. God, I pray that you would remove every other component, God, that you would work in spots of my flesh and our failures so that we might hear you. God, your word tells us that when your word goes out from you, it does not return void. So God, we trust in that today. 
And God, we proclaim your word. We believe your word. And God, we pray that through your word, your Holy Spirit would do a work of transformation in our hearts. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 through 22, the end of the chapter. The Pharaoh tried again with harsh taskmasters to subdue the Hebrews, but they continued to multiply. This is his next step, verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the, to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Shifra and Pua are the two Hebrew midwives at the heart of this story. Immediately in this story, we find something unusual. Uh, we find these two women named. Often in Scripture, when women are dealt with, they are dealt with anonymously. Uh, these aren't the sons of uh, the, the daughters of any of the sons of Israel. Uh, there's no lineage that comes from them that continues to uh, tell uh, the rest of the story as we move forward in the story of the Old Testament. Uh, this is the only place that these two women arise. Yet from the very beginning, we see the importance of, of, of saying their names. Now, if you go and you look at the Hebrew, the names are pretty common. Uh, there's nothing extraordinary about the meaning of their names. But I believe that their names are included because they are heroes because of their heroic actions. And so their names are recorded for history's sake so that generations beyond them can know this story and know these two women by name and thank God for these two women by name. And so we have Shifra and Pua who are named. And then, interestingly enough, even more interesting when it comes to the names, is that we have this king of Egypt who isn't named, a pharaoh who doesn't get named in this story. You know, that's, if you know anything about biblical history, it's one of the hardest things that people have had with the book of Exodus and trying to pinpoint the exact date is that we really don't ever have a name for Pharaoh listed. Uh, we have some guesses about who was the Pharaoh of Egypt at the time, uh, some pretty good educated guesses, but we don't have it or explicitly stated in Scripture who the exact Pharaoh was. Uh, now, you're thinking, well, it was Ramses. Well, that's because you remember Yul Brynner playing Ramses uh, in the, the old Ten Commandments movie that you saw every Good Friday back in the day or Sunday, whatever. Um, so we don't really see that explicitly named, but we have these two women who are culturally, relative to the culture, unimportant compared to the Pharaoh, to the king of Egypt. And these two women are addressed directly by the king of Egypt. Again, another sense of irony. Why would the king of Egypt, who is beginning to have a very sore spot in his heart and his mind for the people of Israel, for the Hebrews, why in the world would he directly address two Hebrew women who were midwives? They didn't have a family of their own, most likely. Why would he address them face to face? Already we see some irony going on. Pharaoh commands them, these two women, 
to when they are with a Hebrew mother who is giving birth. If that woman is to give birth to a boy, then they were supposed to kill them. And if not, a woman, a girl, they were supposed to let the girl live. You can already see the brutality that is going to define much of Pharaoh's interaction with Israel throughout the book of Exodus. You can see much of the brutality that will define most of the world's response to the people of Israel beyond even the scope of Scripture. You see the brutality dripping from Pharaoh's words. Why in the world would he suggest this? He is so paranoid about their presence that he's willing to do almost anything at this point. But then you might ask, well, why the boys and not the girls? The girls are the ones who bear the next generation, so why would you kill the boys and not the girls? Obviously, Pharaoh had a reason. Maybe it was just a simple way to cut it in half, and he just picked boys. Maybe it was because uh, men would comprise the military, those who could violently and physically resist uh, the people of Egypt, and so maybe he went that direction. Because you would kind of think, if he's trying to build a force of slaves, which it kind of appears that he's he's doing in the book of Exodus, that he would want those who are physically more capable, physically stronger, physically more able to be good slaves for him. And so he's kind of shooting himself in the foot by getting rid of, of, of the male population, so you might wonder why exactly he's doing that. I don't know exactly why he's doing that. Obviously, he is afraid of the male population for some reason. However, again, another sense of irony, in Exodus chapter 1 and, and Exodus chapter 2, it's the women of Israel that give him fits. It's they who are undermining his plans. We see it here uh, in Shifra and Pua and in Exodus 2. We see it in in Moses' mother, his sister, and Pharaoh's own daughter. It is the women who are undermining Pharaoh and not allowing him to go through with his plans. So maybe he was on the wrong track to begin with. Obviously, he was on the wrong track to begin with. But it does smack of irony, and I think that's purposeful. These two midwives, of course, disobey Pharaoh. They decide not to do what he's asking them to do. When we fear God more than people, sometimes we have to disobey people, even the powerful ones. Now, quick disclaimer or side note, however you want to put it, there is plenty of places in Scripture, Romans 13 being the most prevalent, being the most uh, noteworthy among them, uh, of how we should submit to the state, how we should submit to powers, how God works through uh, bodies of government in order to bring about justice and punish wrongdoers and those sorts of things. And so we, we do not need to resist the powers that be willy-nilly. Uh, the powers that be should be resisted only when they contradict the will of God. But when they contradict the will of God, which they sometimes do, if we fear God more than we fear people, we have to disobey people sometimes, even the powerful ones. These two women risked everything to be obedient to God. This was clearly their livelihood. These were probably two single Hebrew women, or if not single, they did not have any kids. It's why they became midwives, most likely, because they didn't have any children of their own. It was incredibly important, as we know throughout the book of Genesis and moving forward, for women to bear children in the Hebrew culture. And so that they weren't involved in that, they were able to, to, uh, to be a part of the culture, be a part of the system by being midwives and helping other women bring children into the world. So it was their, their way of life. Uh, it was their uh, probably provided for them a little bit. Uh, as well as we have to worry about their freedom and their lives are at stake as well if they are resisting Hebrew. So they're, uh, if they're resisting Pharaoh. So they're, resist, they're, they're, they're risking their livelihoods as well as their own lives simply to be obedient to God by resisting this evil command that Pharaoh had laid upon them. 
And when Pharaoh gets wind, and this is just a few quick verses in Exodus 1, but we're guessing this is probably the span of several years that it would take him to figure out that they were lying about this or that they weren't doing what he said for, told them to do. He calls them back and he says, what's the deal? What gives? Uh, the Hebrew male children are living. Uh, why aren't you doing what I told you to do? And at first glance, it looks like they're spinning a lie to him, doesn't it? Because they respond to him, well, the Hebrew mothers are much more vigorous Basically, what they're saying, and, and again, this is the power of the land, the supreme sovereign person in all of Egypt. They look at him, the biggest, most important Egyptian in the world, and they say, basically, what the problem is, Pharaoh, is that our Hebrew wives, the, the Hebrew moms, they're a lot stronger than you weak Egyptians. That's basically what they're saying to him. Uh, they're much more vigorous, and they give birth before we can even get there. They're not like the Egyptian women that you know who are coddled in comfort all of the time. These are strong women. All of that is between the lines and in the subtext of what these two women are telling Pharaoh. But they tell him, we can't get there in time, so we can't do what you asked us to do. Now, again, at first glance, it looks like they're spinning a lie, but really, we have no reason to not believe that testimony. We have no reason to not believe that that was indeed the case, if not all of the time, at least some of the time. You would imagine that that surely was the case in this day and age, that women would have, before the news could travel to the midwives for them to get there uh, and provide the necessary care, that the women would have the children. That probably happened on multiple occasions. So it's not as if they're bald-faced lying to, he, to Pharaoh, but they could be bending the truth at least, or at least spinning the story uh, in, in a way that might not be false, but might be the most beneficial way to look at the story for themselves. And now before we look down on that, remember there's a command in the Bible, Jesus actually says it, that we are to be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. There is something to be said about being wise, even worldly wise, when it comes to the way that we implement God's plan, that we make wise decisions without being disobedient. These women were within that category. You see, resistance does not have to be brash and violent. It can also be wise and creative. And this is why I love the fact that we get it from a female perspective in Exodus 1, what resistance can look like when offered from a different people group. Because most of the time when resistance is offered against a power that be in the Old or New Testament, it usually comes in the form of a man who does so actively and violently and with force and with brashness and confidence and to your face. You can imagine many people read this passage and might say, well, if I was talking to Pharaoh, I would say, well, no, I didn't do that for you. Are you crazy? You're a murderous lunatic. Of course I didn't do what you asked me to do. Why would I do that? Or I'd try to assassinate him or try to do something else. Instead, these women realizing that they are in a defenseless position, that they are in a powerless position against this man and all the support system behind him use their wit and their wisdom to be obedient to God while also being wise about how they move forward. And they spin the truth, they present the truth in a way that appeases Pharaoh, or at least shuts him up for the moment. Again, ironically, the supreme Pharaoh doesn't have any response to how they answer his question. He just moves on to the next idea. Resistance does not have to be brash and violent. It can also be wise and creative. And because the Hebrew midwives do this, the Hebrews as a whole prosper. 
Pharaoh's second plan has failed. They continue to multiply. They continue to grow stronger. There continues to be a larger, stronger presence in the land of Goshen within the bounds, boundaries of Egypt, and it begins to make Pharaoh more and more paranoid, giving way to the rest of the story of the book of Exodus. But not only do the Israelites or the Hebrew people as a whole prosper, but these midwives do as well. We see God putting his, his stamp of approval on their actions by God giving them families because they did this thing. Again, let me restate the, 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 the context that, that goes uh, behind the text here is that these women likely did not have children, likely did not have families, which is why they are involved in the midwife business in the first place. But God, seeing their humility, seeing their obedience, even in the face of great risk, decides to extend to them that which they have likely always wanted and gave them a family as a blessing, as, as, as a stamp of approval on what they were doing. These midwives are given families. And the story seems to end well until you keep reading. Pharaoh doesn't give up. Pharaoh is very hard-headed throughout this entire book. He involves his entire nation in the killing off of the male children. It says to everyone now, not just the Hebrew midwives. Maybe he realized he couldn't trust the Hebrew midwives because they were Hebrew. Why he didn't realize that in the first place, I don't know, but he finally understands that he can't trust them to do what he asked them to do, either because they're incompetent or because they're resisting him. He doesn't know for sure. We know that it's they're resisting him. And so he decides instead, I'm going to bring everybody into this game plan. And he tells everyone that if any Hebrew woman gives birth and gives birth to a male child, that that male child is to be killed by being thrown into the Nile and if it's a female child, she should be allowed to live. And of course, this leads us right into the Moses narrative, starting in chapter 2. But it also shows us a comparison that I don't think we should miss, especially within our own American wealth and comfort. First, we have powerless Hebrew wives, defenseless Hebrew women, midwives, I said wives, midwives, Powerless Hebrew midwives willing to resist Pharaoh and risk their own lives to protect the defenseless innocents, to defect, to, to protect defenseless children. These women who had a lot of stuff to lose and who weren't in a powerful position weren't, were willing to go through the risk of losing everything, even their own lives, to protect the defenseless. But what we see at the end of Exodus 1 leading into Exodus 2 is that the powerful Egyptians were complicit in what Pharaoh did. If you remember, after all the atrocities of the Germans came out uh, to, after World War II had been over for a while, you had the Nuremberg trials and all of those things where they were trying to convict war criminals for the atrocities that they had committed against mankind, Jews specifically, that many of the second, third people in charge, their mantra was basically, I followed my orders. I was just following orders, right? That's what they often said in order to try to say, to, to justify their behaviors. It was eventually, ultimately, it was Hitler's fault. And all of these other men underneath him tried to say that they were just being obedient to his vision. And so because of that, they shouldn't be tried as war criminals. They were just doing what their leader told them to do. 
We see that throughout human history, both before World War II and after, and even stretching all the way back here in the Old Testament times. We see that idea repeat itself over and over again. There's been some great uh, social experiments along these lines that prove that we're all capable of blaming someone else in order to justify our own behavior, even really, 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 really terrible behavior. And so we see the Egyptians, the ones who are in power, many of them likely incredibly wealthy, at least compared to the Hebrews in their midst at this time because they had been treated so harshly by Pharaoh, treated as slaves, essentially. In comparison, the Egyptians were were rich and were comfortable, and they do nothing to stop Pharaoh. They do nothing to resist him. Maybe they agreed with his paranoia. Maybe they agreed that there was a problem with this Hebrew people and that they could indeed make life hard for them or overthrow them completely with the help of some other world power. Maybe they did agree with Pharaoh within that, but maybe, maybe, just maybe, they were so busy living their normal lives that they didn't stop to even care about what Pharaoh was doing, the people that he was hurting, and they became complicit in his infanticide and his killing desire to kill half of all babies born to Hebrew women. Powerful Egyptians were complicit in Pharaoh's infanticide. Sometimes submitting to the powers of the world means resisting the will of God, just as sometimes submitting to the will of God means resisting the powers of the world. Who is your king? Shifra and Pua knew it well. Even as the king of Egypt stood before them, They knew that they had a greater king to serve. They feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. They feared God more than they feared humanity. And so they made the decision that honored God. They did so with wisdom. They did so quietly, but they did so boldly facing the risk because they feared God and wanted to follow God more than they did want to follow some worldly power. But sometimes, even amongst those of us in the world today who call ourselves Christians, we can get caught up in the worldly systems, and it might not be a person anymore. It might be a way of life. It might be our own comfort, materialism. It might be a multitude of different things that we get so comfortable or we get so caught up in following the ways of the world that we ignore and resist the will of God and become complicit in all kinds of evil happening around us. So I wonder if someone today came to us, someone with power and authority, maybe your boss at work, maybe someone else that you thought you knew and respected, came to you today and asked you to do something that you knew, maybe not this depraved, but something that you knew was explicitly opposed to the will of God. Would you do it just because you were following orders? Because a power that you respected told you to? Or would you resist because you fear God more than you fear man? True submission requires resistance. Are there areas in your life where the powers of the world contradict the will of God? You have likely faced those places in your life before if you have worked in any I was about to say any secular job, but you could find those people in the church too. So let's just say any job, period. You have likely encountered those places where it got gray and it got icky and you didn't know exactly what to do 
what was right, what was obedient, what was disobedient, what you could get away with, how far you could go in this area, instead of asking the question of, am I being obedient to God? How do you resist those powers, those bosses, those politicians, those authorities? How do we resist the voice of the outsiders coming to us and speaking to us, asking us to do or to believe in things that we know are directly opposed to the will of God? How do we respond? How do we resist those powers? And I believe you have a pretty good path laid out for you in Shifra and Pua. They didn't do so by hurling insults and curses at Pharaoh. They didn't do so boldly and brashly. They didn't do so by shaking their fist. And there is room for that. There's other places for that in Scripture. I'm not saying that there's not. I'm just saying we have an evidence. Uh, We have an example here of women quietly making Pharaoh think that they were submitting to him, wisely, artfully, craftfully, creatively resisting the powers that be in order to be obedient to the power that mattered. May we submit to God in the same way. True submission requires resistance. The next time you think about the Exodus story, think about where it would have gone without the women involved in the story. I could have chosen, I almost did, chose the women of Exodus 2, but I thought the Exodus 1 story just kind of intrigued me a little more, so we went there instead. But in both of those stories, women allow the rest of the story to get told. We get to see Moses placed safely in a basket in the river and pulled out of that river by two women, one on either side and his sister waiting in the weeds, making sure everything went okay. And all of these things worked together in order for God's will to be done, showing that God uses people of all kinds of different stations in life, different genders and different classes And in these two women that he uses, which were likely at least, uh, as far as the Egyptians were concerned, low-class, secondary citizens who were women who in that day and age made them even more secondary, God used these two women to resist the ultimate authority of the land with wise boldness, with humble boldness if there is such a thing. And because they were willing to say no to the powers that be, to risk punishment and even the loss of life in order to submit to the only power that matters, we see the rest of the story get told. God could have used anyone he wanted to, but he chose to use them in work in that way. In what area of your life are you tempted to give in to the powers of the world over the power of God, over the will of God? It's time to resist artfully, craftfully, with wisdom, but with boldness and risk. To resist any power that tells us to do anything that God says not to do. Or tells us not to do anything that God says to do. May we follow this example. And may God use us the same way that he used these two women. During our time of invitation this morning, I want you to mull over that question in your mind Is there anything in your life, anywhere in your life, any station, any circumstance in your life right now where you are tempted to give in to the powers of the world that you know are contradictory to the will of God? Ask for God to give you wisdom, to give you boldness on how to respond, how to resist, and how to follow him, submitting to him and resisting the outside. During our time of invitation, I encourage you to go in that space to pray where you are. You can pray at the altar right there. I'll be down here to pray with you about this or anything else at all during our time of invitation and after the service. Well, let's stand together.
I'm going to pray. Bill and Lynn are going to lead us in a song. And as they do so, I encourage you to move and pray in whatever way God is calling.